Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I'm sure that you do, would you please take them out and go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 12, verses 18 through 25 is where we're going uh, to be uh, this uh, morning. And uh, once again, I just want to say thank you to Josh and the worship team for leading us in worship this morning as we've celebrated and worshiped uh, Christ the King. Thank you so much um, for that. But in Acts chapter 12, verses 18 through 25, um, we're in this series simply titled Hope Uh, for the holidays, and if there's something that the world is longing for in today, it is this, it's hope. We need hope. Amen? And so we are looking at uh, hope found in the Christmas story, but as we are looking at the Christmas story through the book of Acts, and so I've titled today's message, Family Matters. Say that with me. Family Matters. You know, one of the great traditions of Christmas time is the picture of, of families coming together and enjoying one another's company or not enjoying one another's company, but, but families do come together. It reminds me of, of two young uh, brothers who were uh, spending the night with their grandparents during the Christmas season, and it was before Christmas, and at, and at bedtime, the, the two brothers, they knelt down beside their bed and they began to pray, and the youngest brother began to pray very loudly, and he prayed, I pray for a new bike. I pray for an iPad. And it was loud, and the older brother kind of elbowed him and said, why are you praying so loud? God is not deaf. And the young brother said, I know, but grandma is. (laughs) They understood family, amen? They understood a family, and so uh, Christmas is just a great time uh, for families to come together, but, but what I want us to look at is, uh, is why do families matter, and, and why does it matter um, that we're in a family? What is God's idea about a family? Now, before we read our text, let me give you just three uh, biblical principles about a family that, that we see all throughout uh, Scripture. Number one. Uh, Families were created by God. Amen? God created the family. Well, how do you know that? Well, that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, this is what God's Word says. It says, for this reason, a man, which in Greek means a In Hebrew, it means a man. In Greek, it means a man. And in English, it means a man. Are you with me? A man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, different than a man, female, that's what it means, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the biblical idea of a family. Now, when God wrote this, Genesis chapter 2, this is before the fall. God's idea of a family, are you ready for this church? God's idea of a family, it is a man and a wife, a woman, husband and wife with children. That's the biblical definition of a family because when you look at the text, a man leaves his mother and father to be joined with his wife to become one flesh. That means male, female, and they are to uh, uh, populate the earth, which is with children. That is 
pre-sin. This is pre-fall. So if you could describe the biblical family, it would be uh, a man, husband, woman, wife, children, and a dog, no cats. That's the biblical definition. <laughs> Amen? That's the, take it to the bank, that's the definition of a family. Um, but but, but, but here's, here's why we need to say this, and students, uh, junior high, middle school, high school, college students, here's why you need to understand this, because this is not what the world believes. It's not what the world believes. Listen, the family is God's idea. As a matter of fact, the family is the first divine institution. It, it predates the church. Do you know that family? Families predates the church. And so this, this concept of a family, this is God's idea that a man and a woman come together to produce children. This is the family. Listen, mankind did not think up this idea of a family. It's not man's idea. What we're seeing in the 21st century is this, that man is trying to recreate the family and redefine the family. But folks, that's, that's not, this, this is not our idea. It is God's idea about the family. God created the family. You need to understand that. Number two, understand this about God's word and about the family. God designed the family to teach God's ways to the next generation. God gave you and I as families he gave us the job description, and part of that job description is we are to pass on the faith to the next generation. And this is what, this is what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, it says this, these words which I'm commanding you today, this is God through Moses to the people of Israel, said these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. And then he says this, you are to teach them diligently. That word diligently means you need to talk about this with your children. This needs to be God's word, God's command needs to be on your lips, moms and dads, and speak those to your children, to your grandchildren. You talk about God's word when you sit down at the house, when you, when you walk along the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. This is God's command for us as a family. You, mom, you, dad, you are to teach God's commands to your children. Amen? That's the design for the family. God created the family. God gave the family um, a job description. And here's number three. The third thing I want you to see about a family is this, is that God uses family terms to express spiritual truths. Now you think about this in scripture. God uses family terms to express spiritual truths. For example, God is called what in the scriptures? Mother or father? Father, y'all weren't very positive in that, were you? Well, let's, let's try it again. What is God called in Scripture? Father or mother? He's called Father. Listen, all throughout Scripture, God is referenced as Father. All throughout church history, all throughout Christianity, all throughout Orthodox Christianity, Orthodox meaning you go back in time, all throughout church history and all throughout biblical history and literature, God is referenced as father, not mother. 
And nobody was offended by that until the 20th and 21st century. Are you with me? Yeah, nobody was offended by that until just recently. You call God our mother, you're going against historical Christianity. That, that's just the reality of it. That's the biblical truth. That's what those who have gone before us have always called God, God our Father. You look at Scripture, we're called God's children. Believers in Christ are called God's uh, children. Jesus is called our brother. You just see all throughout Scripture that God uses the family to express spiritual truths. Those are all God's ideas, but we have a problem, don't we? We have a problem, right? Something happened in Genesis chapter three that has totally destroyed families, amen? And in Genesis chapter three, sin enters into the world and God's idea has been messed up because man messed it up and sin entered into the world. And because of that, because of Genesis chapter three, we live in a broken planet. And because of this broken planet, that means this, families don't work very well together today. Can I get a loud amen on that one? Amen. Yeah, I want you to write this down, write this down. Every family is broken, and there are no perfect families. That's the reality, isn't that right? Now some of you, you may be saying to yourself, thank goodness somebody said that, right? Because we then, again, live in a world that we think, well, this family's perfect, this family looks good. No, everybody has problems. Look at your neighbor and tell them kindly, you've got problems. <laughs> All right? <laughs> calm down, y'all, calm down. <laughs> good gracious. <laughs> Man. We all have problems. And we have problems Every family is broken. Every family is broken, and there are no perfect families. But here's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even in our brokenness, even in our, um, with our warts, our failures, our um, ignorance at times, and our blindness to our family and to others, even in all of our frustrations and all of our fears, here's what God says to the family, I still want to use you for my glory. God can use your family, and God wants to use your family with all of your warts and all of your difficulties. Well, family matters. Well, let's look at our text, and I want you to see a family that you do not want to emulate. We don't want to follow this family. We're gonna read our text, we're gonna make the connection back to Christmas, I promise you. But Acts chapter 12, verse number 18, you follow along in your copy of God's word, and this is what it says, verse 18. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. Now stop there for just a second. Uh, 
Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 17, it tells the story of a king by the name of King Herod. Herod Agrippa is his name. And Herod Agrippa, he is going, um, he's going, he's going mad. He's going ballistic on the church. He is, in Acts chapter 12, he has murdered the disciple James, the first disciple who is martyred. Um, James has been killed. Uh, the crowd loves it. Uh, Herod uh, loves the crowd giving him praise, and he says, well, you know what? If, if they were happy about me killing James, let me go after the head disciple, who is Peter. And he says, I'm going to arrest Peter. So he arrests Peter and puts Peter in prison, and the text tells us in, uh, in Acts 12 that, that Herod puts 16 soldiers around Peter. Apparently, Herod thinks that Christians can escape Peter because I think it's happened before, right? Escape, escape prison because it's happened before. And so he doesn't want this Christian Peter to escape. Well, we read and we talked about this last week that in prison, um, an angel appears in the cell in Peter's cell. And the angel says to Peter, I'm delivering you, get up, let's go. And the scripture says that the chains fell off and Peter walks out of prison and the, and the soldiers, they're all asleep. Peter walks out and the story tells us, goes on, that Peter makes his way to the house of John Mark. John Mark shows up later in the book of Acts when he goes on mission trips with, with Paul and with Barnabas. He shows up at John Mark's house and Peter in the middle of the night knocks on the door. Now, when somebody knocks on the door at three o'clock in the morning, men, what do you do? You tell your wife to go answer the door. That's what you do. That's what any godly man does. Well, at three o'clock in the morning, a lady goes to the door. A lady, a servant, a lady uh, goes to the door and she answers the door and she hears Peter's voice. And she's so excited that Peter is there. You know what she does? She runs back inside where everybody is and says, hey, Peter's at the door. And all the people said, well, did you open the door and let him in? And she said, I didn't think about that. She runs back. She opens the door and lets Peter in. And Peter tells this great story of how God has delivered him from prison. It's a great, great story. And in verse 18, picks up that story and says, the soldiers who were watching him, uh, they were a little afraid. There was no small disturbance. Something happened. Well, let's pick up our story. Verse 19, when Herod, this is Herod Agrippa, had searched for Peter and had not found him, he examined the guards, the 16 of them, and he ordered them that they be led away to be what? He killed them. He killed all 16 soldiers. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea, and he was spending time there, verse 20. Now he was very angry, this Herod Agrippa, with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. And on an appointed day, Herod, 
having put on his royal apparel. One commentator said this, that his apparel was, uh, was, was covered in silver, so that when the sun hit his apparel, the sun brightly reflected off of his silver. He wanted people to see him. You get the idea? He wanted to be seen. And he took his seat on the rostum. The rostum is the Greek word bema. This is a bema seat. Uh, you may know, believers, the name uh, bema seat, the judgment seat in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Every believer in Jesus Christ, you and I will stand before the bema seat. It's a judgment seat where you will be stand before the judge, God the Father, God the Son, and you will be judged according to um, the, the deeds that you have done. This isn't a, a salvation judgment, it's a, an awards ceremony. Every single one of us in this room who are believers in Jesus Christ, you will stand before the Bema seat. Please do not confuse this, what Revelation calls the great white throne judgment. Look at your neighbor and say, you don't want to be at the great white throne judgment. You don't want that. That's a bad judgment. That's when those who are not believers in Jesus Christ are told their eternal destination. You don't go to the great white throne judgment. You want the Bema seat. Are you with me? So Herod, he's standing at a Bema seat in Caesarea, and he begins to deliver an address. In verse 22, it says this, And the people kept crying out, The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give God the glory. And then everybody's favorite phrase in all of Scripture, and he was eaten by worms. Isn't that great? He was eaten by worms and he died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Verse 25, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John Mark. Won't you pray with me please? Father, I thank you for the reading of your word. Your word is what gives us life. Your word is what gives us hope. And I pray, Almighty God, that as we examine your word, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, and that we will apply your word to our lives daily. And that when we read, and we study, and we submit ourselves to your ways, that we would live for you and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, families matter. Let me tell you why families matter. And we're looking at the example of Herod. I want you to write this down. Families matter because family problems are often passed down. Would you agree with that statement? Family problems are often passed down. I want you to look back at verse number 19. Looking back at verse number 19, we are introduced to a king. His name is Herod. Herod Agrippa is his full name, but does the name Herod ring a bell within the Christmas story? It does. We know the name Herod the Great. If you were to go back and read in, in Matthew and in Luke and you read the Christmas story, we were introduced to Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great was the ruler when, when Jesus was born, and you know his story is he is Herod the Great, he really wanted to kill Christmas. 
Uh, he wanted to know um, who, who Jesus was and where Jesus was and where he was born, and he wanted to kill uh, Jesus. And when you think of Herod the Great, you can think that Herod the Great is the first Ebenezer Scrooge in all of history. He's the first Grinch who stole Christmas. That's Herod the Great. He hated Christmas even though he had never heard the word Christmas. Herod the Great that we read about in the Christmas story is the grandfather of Herod Agrippa that we read about in Acts chapter 12. Family problems are often passed down. And we've already read in our text that Herod Agrippa, he was a murderer. He has already killed 16 people. But know this, like grandfather, like grandson. Herod Agrippa follows in the line of his granddad, Herod the Great. A couple things I want to point out to you about, about these two men. Number one, these two men, they despised people. Herod the Great despised people. Herod Agrippa despised people. Verse 19 tells us that he examined the guards and he ordered them to be executed. He has killed all 16 of the soldiers who lost track of Peter. Where did he learn this behavior? He learned it from his grandfather, Herod the Great. And I've already mentioned it, but I want you to turn there. Go to Matthew chapter 2. I've already mentioned it, but I just want you to see it in the scriptures. In Matthew chapter 2, um, verses 1 through 12, is the story of the Magi, and where we hear about Herod the Great, and we know that uh, Herod had heard about the birth of Jesus, the Magi um, have come to him, the Magi, the wise men have said to Herod the Great, um, where is this king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east. Herod says, I don't know, you tell me where he is, I want to come worship him. Well, you know the story, the Magi go find Jesus, but then they are told in a dream to not go back to Herod the Great. Verse number 16 picks up that story, and it says this about Herod. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became enraged, and he went and he killed all the male boys who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under. Wow. It's one of the saddest stories in the Christmas story. Wouldn't you agree? That somebody could be so despicable and so despise people that they would be willing to execute them. But this is the story of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a notorious murderer. Let me tell you a couple of other things about him, and you see why Herod Agrippa from Acts 12 is doing what he does because he's learned it from his grandfather. Herod the Great not only killed all of the boys under two years old in Bethlehem, let me tell you, the other people he killed. The, I'm just saying, right now is going to be the encouraging part of my message, okay? Y'all just hang on. But over the years, Herod the Great killed his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, don't say a word, <laughs> his wife. I mean, he killed everybody. And when he killed his wife, he killed his wife around the age of 40-ish but he still had 30 more years on the throne. And ever since he killed his wife, he went, he went nuts, he went ballistic, he went crazy. Near the end of Herod the Great's life, word came back to him that his sons, 
The sons of the wife that he had killed were out to overthrow him. So guess what he did to his sons? That's right. He killed them. Guess whose dad he killed? Herod Agrippa from Acts chapter 12. His his dad was killed by his granddad. Do you see how family matters? You see kind of this idea where Herod Agrippa gets this idea that if things don't go your way, the, thing, the way that you do that is you, you, you kill people. And the reason Agrippa does that is because he despises people because that's what he's been taught. He's taught from an early age that from Herod the Great that if somebody gets in your way, you wipe them out. And you only wipe people out because you despise people. And when you lose respect of people who are made in the image of God, you are on the wrong track of life. Amen? You are wrong. But Herod Agrippa has learned this behavior from his family. See, it's often been said that, um, uh, that you, you actually... Uh, people learn by just observing what you do. Agrippa's learned this from his family. He despised people. The second thing that I want you to see about Agrippa, and he learned this from his grandfather as well, is this. They both were prideful and arrogant. Look at verses 21 and 22. When it says, on that appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, we talked about the shininess of that apparel, he took his seat on the rostrum, and he began delivering an address to them. Uh, That Greek for delivering, it's in the imperfect tense, which means he didn't shut up. That's what it means. He's a, I won't say this, never mind. I was going to say he was a typical politician, but I decided not to say that. That's okay? All right. (laughs) But not the politicians in our congregation. You do well. And he began talking, and he was just, boasting. And then verse 22 says this, the people kept crying out the voice of a God and not of a man. Have you ever heard of the word flattery? Have you ever heard of the word flattery? The word flattery means excessive praise. Verse 22 is excessive praise, and and flattery is, is giving excessive praise or giving excessive compliments for your own personal gain. That's flattery. And here in verses 21 and 22, you see this taking place. Uh, the text says in verse 22 that they kept crying out. They kept, they kept telling uh, Herod, you're the voice of a God and not of a man. And again, it's in the imperfect tense, which means they are saying this over and over and over and over, and getting louder and louder and louder and louder. And they are declaring to Herod, you are the greatest. You are the voice of a God. You are not a man. So this huge crowd is just giving this, this excessive praise to a king who does not need his head to get any bigger. Are you with me? And they are showering him with praise. Now, why are they doing that? Why are they giving him excess praise? Well, you look back in verse number 20, it tells you why. Because he's mad at their people. He's mad at the people. 
He's trying to, uh, uh, they're, they're, trying, they're showering him with praise because they're trying to convince him not to be mad at them. And they're saying things to him that are not true. But instead of receiving it as just a compliment and moving on, something happens to Herod. He receives it. And he believes it. You see, that's the problem with flattery is that people can tell you good things and then your head gets bigger. And the Bible says that's dangerous. The Bible says, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 27, it says this, the crucible is for silver, the furnace for gold, but a man is tested by the praise that is given to him. You be careful when praise is given your way because it is our sinful bent to receive it. Does that make sense? Does that mean you can't encourage anybody? No. Does it mean you can't praise anybody? No. What that means is you be careful with what people say to you. Because what happens when you begin to believe the flattery, you begin to believe that you're bigger and better than everybody else. And folks, I hate to burst your bubble, but I'm going to. And I mean this in all pastoral love possible. You're not as good as you think. (laughs) Have a Merry Christmas. but you're not as bad as you think either. You're not as good, but you're not as bad. Do you know why? Because when Jesus Christ died on the cross, you've heard the saying that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You're no better than anybody else. We're equal in the eyes of God. You're created in the image of God. Now, pastor, how can you say that we're all equal? Well, God created you. God formed you in the womb. God knows you intimately more than you know yourself. God knows you. He knows the good, the bad, the ugly. He knows the indifferent. And he does know this. He does know who is his own, the children of God, and he does know who are not the children of God. All of mankind is not the children of God. We're all created in the image of God. Believers are children of God. Non-believers are not. God desires that all become children of God. Are you with me? So listen. Just because we're a believer, just because we're an American, listen, and this is hard to say, but I want you to hear me out. It doesn't mean that we're better than those who live in the Middle East. Are you with me? We're not. Because we all stand in need of grace. And we all stand in need of mercy. So when it comes to flattery, You have to be careful. Because when you look at scripture, 
The way of a believer, and I'm gonna talk about this here in a few minutes, the way of a believer is always humility, not arrogance or pride. That's, that's the way of scripture. A Christ follower, listen, the Christ follower is not my head gets bigger, as a matter of fact, my head gets smaller. Jesus gets bigger. That's the picture of the way of Christ. Well, here, here we see Herod following the example of the family. Family problems are often passed down. I, this whole idea of arrogance and pride, are y'all, are y'all still with me? This is a wonderful text to preach at Christmas time. Um, this idea of sinful uh, pride, um, just this past week or a couple weeks ago, one of our church members, uh, Billy Zay, gave me a Christmas present. I don't know where Billy is right now, and uh, he's over here to, to my right. Um, but Billy gave me a Christmas present, and I opened it, and it was a, it was a book, uh, a book that, that he wrote. And it's a wonderful book. It's called Sinful Pride, A Man's Kryptonite. That's pretty good. And I've read uh, several chapters of it, but in, the, in his book, Billy talks about Muhammad Ali. Anybody remember that guy? Muhammad Ali, probably, uh, probably the best boxer of all time, but also probably the most arrogant man who ever lived, probably. He had sayings, I am the greatest. Float like a butterfly. Very good. Quote Romans 15, 13 for me. Very good. All right. Good. Good. But, but Billy tells the story of, of Muhammad Ali that when he was young, arrogant, boastful, pride, prideful, arrogant, you name it. Right? Well, at the end of Muhammad Ali's life, he was stricken by uh, Parkinson's disease. By the end of his life, Muhammad Ali can't even speak. He can't even boast. He is so dependent upon other people to help him. Folks, that's a picture of what pride and arrogance will do to you. That's what will happen. The end result of pride and arrogance is destruction. That's what scripture says. Pride comes before the fall. That's what scripture says. And this is what we see, and look at verse number Look with me in verse number um, 23. Look what happens. This is the story of Muhammad Ali. It's the story of Herod Agrippa. It says, and immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And what happened to him? He was eaten by worms. And he died. This is a picture of the sin of pride. And church, I want you to know this, and this is, this is, this is a hard, this is a hard message, it's a hard topic. I've been in the ministry for 20, 25, 27 years. And, and church, let me tell you this, the number one sin that I see is pride and arrogance. It's pride and arrogance. It's the unwillingness of God's people to humble themselves. Or 
or a believer in Christ walking in the flesh to a degree of glorifying everything else but God the Father. I've counseled countless people. And you can always go back to pride and arrogance within any relationship. There are two phrases in this world that are very, very difficult to say. I'm sorry, and Worcestershire sauce. <laughs> Isn't that right? But I'm sorry. I was wrong. I messed up. Another phrase that's really hard to say is this, you were right, I was wrong. But folks, I, I wanna tell you that at Christmas time, when we see the baby that's laid in a manger, and we see our Lord and Savior come in the most humble of ways, and you see the story of the Magi coming to Christ, bringing the gifts, and it says in scripture, they bowed down. They bowed down, and they worshiped the king. And history tells us that the Magi were wealthy men. We don't know if there were three, that's made up. We don't know. But we know that these wise men came, they were searching, they were looking for Jesus, and they, and they, they go to a politician of the day and say, where is the king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, where is he? The politicians didn't even know. The politicians don't even know who Jesus is. All they want to do is to wipe him out. That has been the same theme all throughout political history. Yet the wise men, they find Jesus, and they come to him, and they bring him their gifts and give it back to Jesus. Do you get the picture? You, you don't see the magi with their gifts and coming and laying down by uh, Jesus and with Mary and Joseph and saying, wow, here, look at the gold, man. Let me, tell you about, let me tell you all about this gold. I found this gold. I did this gold. I did. How, no, 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 no. They didn't say it. Here's what they did. Here's the gold. Jesus, it's yours. And I worship you and I bow down. You don't hear them say, oh, Jesus, here's the frankincense. If I was a magi, I would say this, Jesus, I don't even know what frankincense is, but here you go. Myrrh, I don't know, but here it is. But do you get the picture? When they come to the Christ child, they come in humility. And at Christmas time, we were reminded of the simple way that Jesus came into this world. He was born to a teenage girl who wasn't even officially married yet. Can you say scandal of all scandals? 
Church, did you know that pastors have been run out of their church because their daughters became pregnant out of wedlock? Do you know that? I, I know friends that that has happened to. Yet Jesus comes through a teenage girl. Her fiance, Joseph, isn't even the father. And you look at Mary. And if there's any person in all the scripture who could have said to God, how dare you? God, you messed up my life. How dare you do this? It's not what I signed up for. It's not what I wanted. I didn't do that. Of all the people in scripture, Mary could have done that. But when you read Luke chapter one, it tells us this, that Mary said this, I am your servant. You do to me as you please. Do you know what that is? That is a state of humility. God, you're bigger than me. I don't understand. But I humbly accept my plot in life. You read later on in the book of Luke and in the Christmas story, and you read of Mary, and she wrote this song called the Magnificat, one of the most beautiful songs ever written. And Mary responds back to Jesus after hearing about her cousin Elizabeth and, uh, and, her, and her pregnancy. And, and Mary says back to Jesus and to God the Father and says, my soul exalts you. Thank you for choosing a humble servant. Of all the people in scripture who could have condemned God for what he did to her, Mary's the one, but also Mary is the great example of the one who could boast like no other person could boast. Because she's the mother of the Christ child. If anybody in all of history could have boasted and bragged and said, look at me, look at, look at what, look at what God has done for me, look at all of my glory. If there's anybody who could say that it was Mary. But you know what? She didn't. She bowed the knee. And she walked in humility. The Magi walked in humility. Mary walks in humility. And we remember them fondly for what they did. History will forget about Herod the Great and Herod Agrippa and and the things that they have done. They did great things, but here's what we know about them. They passed on a legacy of evil, of hating people, and of painful deaths. The Magi, Mary, humility, wisdom, love, which is the way of the cradle. Because when you choose to follow Christ, when you choose to follow Christ, it is a call to humility. It is a call to die to yourself and make much of Jesus and not yourself. That's a hard lesson to learn, amen? But you know who's able to pass that down? You as a family. Moms and dads, 
your children will learn what you do. And they will copy you. So here's the challenge from our text today is this. Don't be eaten by worms. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? You put arrogance away, you put pride away, and you walk in humility. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. I thank you, Father, that you sent your son Jesus to redeem us from the curse of sin. Thank you that that your son Jesus' death on the cross has broken the curse of sin. We, we, We don't have to follow in the sins of our fathers, but but we can, we can lean into your mercy and your grace because of the blood that was spilled for us at Calvary. And Father, I'm so thankful that your, that your blood has delivered us from, from the chains of sin, that we are no longer slaves to sin, but you call us to walk in the way of Christ, which is the way of humility. I pray, God, that we today would commit to that. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, amen.